This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Professor Michael Barretti, Director of the Institute for Executive Education and Lifelong Learning here at Suffolk University. It's my pleasure to welcome you this afternoon to our program on leading the business of nonprofits. Uh, the Institute was founded several years ago to uh, reinforce the Sawyer Business School's commitment to uh, executive education and lifelong learning and to sustain leadership development on a global basis. Um, our principal objective is to share knowledge, to exchange knowledge across a broad range of industry sectors and uh, a very broad constituent community. Today's program is part of our very successful lifelong learning series developed by our Director of Corporate Learning Initiatives, Julie Schneewind. So thank you once again for your outstanding effort in organizing it, Julie. Uh, it's also important for me to thank our sponsors uh, for their support in making today's program happen. That is the Suffolk University Alumni Association. I believe Angela Coletta is here. Thank you, Angela. Um, the Sawyer Business Schools recently formed, but um, uh, very important, Institute of Public Service, Rink Beinecke. Thank you, Rick. The Massachusetts Not-for-Profit Network, Esther Hannig, Deputy Director. Esther, thank you. And Third Sector New England, Jonathan Spack, Executive Director. Is Jonathan here? We thank him in absentia. <laughs> So our panel today is an outstanding group of leaders from diverse nonprofit organizations. They are your real-world professors for today uh, who've graciously agreed to give us their time, talent, and the treasure of their knowledge. Uh, they'll be answering your questions, and at the end they'll be offering you some valuable advice about things that matter to you. The biographical sketches are in your program, but uh, please allow me to introduce them to you uh, individually. Sylvia Farrell-Jones, President and CEO of the YWCA of Boston. Uh, Robert Minetti, Director of Development, Massachusetts General Hospital. Kathy Taylor, Associate Vice President at uh, Rhodes Scholar Elder Hostel, Hostel, sorry. Uh, and Ed Wilson, CEO of uh, Earthwatch International. Our moderator today is Celeste Wilson, former direct, executive director of the Boston Arts and Business Council, and I'm very pleased to say a Suffolk University executive MBA alumna. Thank you, and thanks to all of you for uh, taking time out of your schedules to be here today. We are really looking forward to a very, very exciting panel. Um, as you know, in your program are the bios for you to review, so we won't have to spend time with lengthy introductions to give you enough time to ask questions. Um, and that brings me to telling you a little bit about the format of today. We are going to go through with each panelist asking them a bit about the work that they do in their organization. Uh, and then we have some prepared questions for them, which each of them will be able to respond. Um, on the tables, you will see these cards. And the purpose for these cards is for you to jot down questions you may have. We will be giving a very brief 
a break at the end of our questions um, for you to write. But as you're listening to any of the panelists, please make sure you jot down your question and also perhaps the panelists who you would feel best prepared to answer based on their prepared question responses. All right. And then um, finally, there is also an evaluation on each of the tables on these blue forms. Um, this is very, very important because we would like the Institute for Executive Education to get feedback so that in the future we'll be able to offer programs that are relevant for you and also to let them know how we're doing. So thank you again for being here and let's move on to our um, fabulous panel that Julie's put together uh, today. First, I would like each of you to um, talk a little bit about your organization, your involvement with the organization, and the tenants that you have in uh, globally, um, so that we get a little bit of a, of a beginnings of begin of prepared questions. Uh, Ed, why don't we start with you? Great, um, <clears throat> happy to start, and thanks very much for uh, inviting me. It's wonderful to be here. Um, Earthwatch is an organization that's been around for 40 years now, um, promoting a, a, a sustainable environment. Uh, as an organization, we believe there are really two essential pieces to uh, creating uh, a sustainable environment. The first of those is um, that we need to understand what's happening in the environment. Um, and so, as such, Earthwatch has grown over the last 40 years to become one of the world's largest private funders of scientific field research. Uh, we're supporting the work of something like 70 scientists working in 55 different countries around the world, primarily focused on issues like uh, climate change, oceans, ecosystem services, cultural heritage, um, and making sure that the research that we do support um, is fed into uh, the large global agendas that we're dealing with over the next decade. Um, and so from that perspective, I, I think uh, Earthwatch has been highly effective. However, what I would say is that that's really just one part of what we do. You can have, in my belief, all the research in the world. You can have journals stacked up to the ceiling. Um, unless you're getting people involved, uh, quite frankly, the solutions aren't going to happen. And uh, just science alone is not enough to shift uh, public opinion, as we're witnessing right now in Durban. So therefore, the other part that Earthwatch does is we engage people directly in support of those researchers around the world. Um, we're almost like the Environmental Peace Corps, if you will. Since we started, we sent well over 100,000 international volunteers to go out and work shoulder to shoulder with the scientists in the field, collecting that data. And I'd argue and argue quite strongly it's the impact we have on those individuals which is as important, if not more important, than the research. Because what happens is people gain a little piece of the jigsaw about these issues, which they then take with them back into their schools, into their workplace, into community. And that's really where change happens, is nine times out of ten, bottom up, not top down. So Earthwatch, in addition to its research portfolio, has developed a series of programs, primarily engaging um, not only the public, but uh, programs for educators and for students, and more recently, uh, programs for corporations and businesses. And we're now working with something like 40 of the Fortune 500 companies around the world, engaging their management and their, their employees in issues around sustainability in the workplace. To uh, finish off, uh, just in terms of background information, the organization, as I said, is 40 years old. It's about uh, internationally now around uh, 22, 23 million in terms of uh, revenues. 
Uh, we're operating from uh, uh, offices in nine different countries around the world. Um, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really fascinating organization. So even if uh, I, ch I achieve nothing else today, I hope that you'll uh, consider doing an Earthwatch expedition sometime in the future. Thank you. Uh, thank you, everyone, and uh, thank you for joining us here this afternoon, and thank you for inviting me, and I'm thrilled to be amongst this distinguished panel, so thank you. Um, the first question I'd like to ask, how many of you have ever heard of Elder Hostel? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> now, do you know that Rhodes Scholar was part of Elder Hostel? Mm -hmm. No? Okay, well, before I ask you any more questions about Elder Hostel, I tell you that Road Scholar is the new name of Elder Hostel, and the reason why we changed our name is um, there's a lot in a name, my friends, and um, we were finding that as people get um, older and older, people did not like the name Elder, and they certainly didn't want to be held hostile. <laughs> so uh, we were finding that that was becoming a barrier. Elder Hostel has been around since 1975, and we do educational travel for uh, mature adults. And uh, one of the things that we do that's very, very different from just a basic touring company is that education and discovery and learning and discourse is at the uh, sort of feet of what we do. And uh, we are finding that as we begin to age out, before I go into that, how many people, or what is the age you think most people start to agree that they're getting older? Just throw it out in the audience, people. 75. Okay, so let me just tell you, no matter what age you are in the audience, my friends, add 10 years and that's when you decide that you're elderly. So if you're 60, <laughs> add 10 years and then you say 70. Everyone thinks, and rightfully so, that they're much youthful and much younger than their chronological age belies. <laughs> so you see why we were having a hard time with the name Elder Hospital. People would say to us all the time, I went on that program, it was a great program, but they felt that they just couldn't tell people that they went on an Elder Hospital program. <laughs> and even my colleague right here, when I came in, he said, oh, Kathy, I'm so glad you guys changed your name from um, Elder Hospital to Road Scholar. And I will tell you, there's a lot in the name, friends, because our, our, our business has gone up about 15% uh, since we changed the name. Anyway, we have uh, been around, as I said, since 1975. We uh, service about 125,000 people a year. And um, what we believe in is lifelong learning, that learning doesn't stop when you graduate from college or uh, graduate school. And as a matter of fact, we believe that we're all going to age. There's no question about that. But the goal, friends, is to age healthfully. That's what you want to do. And we're finding that if you put these three ingredients together at the same time, a physical component, a mental component, a spiritual component, and an academic component, you, it tends to slow the aging process down. But the key is that you have to do them all together and while even knowing that you're doing it. And one of the things that you can probably do without even knowing that you're doing all of that is what? Travel, educational travel. You're having a good time. And the thing about Elder Hostel or Road Scholar, the reason why we resonate so is that people that go in the program tend to be similarly situated. We have 7,000 programs. We're in 150 countries. So that when you go on a program like this, you know that people are really very much interested in uh, discovery. They're intellectually curious. They're, they're not just people that are content to sit on a bus 
and just sort of tour the neighborhood, if you will. And I will tell you, I have gone on many. I've only been with the company for four years. I was with WGBH um, for um, 12 years, and before that I was with uh, WBZ. And one of the things that I have to say that GBH and Elder Hostel or Rhodes Scholar has in common is that, that that drive for lifelong education and to continuing to make yourselves better. So um, I'm here today just to tell you a little bit more about um, Rhodes Scholar and what we do. Um, at one time, friends, we were strictly for people that are 55 and older. That is no longer the case. Um, we tend to, for any adult that is interested in sort of continuing with lifelong learning, continuing to be intellectually curious, to continuing to want to discover. And also, we really appeal to the solo traveler. I will tell you that I have found, even amongst my own friends and family, many times people want to travel, and they want to be around people that are similarly situated. They are like the same kinds of things that they like, but they don't want to go by themselves. So a lot of times they kind of just sit home, they have their vacation, and the next thing they know, Monday turns into Tuesday, which turns into Thursday, and their week is over. One of the things that Elder Hostel or Rhodes Scholar specializes in is um, we feel that after um, a few hours, you're never alone. You're never with a stranger. And so after a while, people, in fact, have blogs and they have travel clubs. So as though if I met Ed on a trip and we figured that we both like what we're on the trip for, whether it's mountain climbing or, or cycling or we like museums or ancient ruins, and uh, you tend to keep in touch through um, email and blogs, and you all of a sudden have a travel partner that you didn't with your own within your own personal family, and we find that 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 really resonates uh, very much. And the last thing that I wanted to tell you that our two founders in 1975, here's where they got this concept from. They happened to be traveling around Europe, and they happened to be in Sweden. They were seeing all of these people that were. Um, past 55, and they seem so invigorous and really uh, young in spirit, young in mind. And um, they found that these people were um, in these folk schools, and they um, education was very, very important to them, even past 55, 60, 60, 65, and that's where the concept took off. And to, in 1975, we started off in five college uh, universities. Uh, colleges and universities, and uh, we just started out with a small catalog. And I don't, many of you in here are probably teachers, but I know you're all educators. But at one time, friends, colleges in the summer had empty dorms. And we came to these various universities and colleges in New England and said, we will take your dorm space in the summer. We will take your dorm space, and we went to teachers, and we said to teachers, either you can come and explore some of the programs that we offer, or you could also teach those programs. So the people that we have that either teach our programs, they tend to be very, very, very uh, well-suited and really experts in their own field. So people also gravitate to Rhodes Scholar or Elder Hostel because they know the teachers are going to be pretty much at the top of their game in terms of experts and that kinds of things. And the last thing I want to say before I turn it over to my colleague over here to my left, how many of you have a birthday today? Does anyone have a birthday tomorrow or this week? Next week? In the month of December? 
Oh my goodness. Wow. Uh, January? <laughs> <laughs> who's closer to before January 5th? Who's, who's January 1? Oh, okay, good for you. Uh, Robin, tell him what he's won. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, great. Excellent. So thank That's you. Great. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Kathy. Bob. Well, thank you, Kathy. It's uh, you know, thank you everybody for being here. I, you, you're not supposed to start your remarks with a disclaimer, but I have to do it. Um, <laughs> my my career has been primarily spent in higher education. I, I retired after 40 years in higher ed, and um, I flunked retirement in three. Three, three months later, joined the um, MGH staff, and, and so I'm, I'm still becoming oriented to, to Mass General Hospital. So it's, it's tough to be in front of a crowd representing a, a fairly new organization, but worse when you've got a table full of your <laughs> colleagues sitting over here uh, looking at you, threatening to take notes. Mm -hmm. uh, I think everyone in the room is, is probably familiar with Mass General Hospital. It's clearly New England's largest uh, hospital. It's one of the nation's largest academic research centers, houses some 20, or employs some 23,000 plus people, um, about 10,000 of those are clinical staff, and hundreds and hundreds of, of programs. And so I couldn't begin to, to represent all of those programs. What I told Julie I would do today, though, is talk a little bit about fundraising for those kinds of programs, as well as some that I raised uh, funds for when I was Vice President for Development at uh, Bentley University. Um, so I'm going to bounce back and forth if that's okay in my remarks between higher ed and, and health care. They're similar, but they're, they're very, very different. I'm working primarily with the Center for Global Health uh, at, at MGH. And MGH was founded on a, on a principle that said, when in distress, every person is our neighbor. And as we live in a global environment, global community, our neighborhood is around the world. Uh, MGH got started getting involved in, in, in global health when it responded to the Halifax explosion back in 1917. Uh, those of you who are familiar with it know that uh, a, 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 a two ships collided in, in, in Halifax Harbor, one a munitions boat, a ship, and one a, a merchant marine ship, and they caused that that ex, that uh, collision caused the uh, largest man-made explosion before the explosion of the uh, of the atom bomb. And Boston, Mass General Hospital, was the first organization, and we were the first city to respond uh, to that disaster. And that's why we get a Christmas tree every year from from uh, Nova Scotia, from Halifax, to to thank us ongoing for this, um, for, for responding. The foundation of our global health work is in disaster response. Um, we respond immediately to disasters. We have several teams of 60 people that, that can be on an airplane within uh, 24 hours to a, a disaster site. Those are comprehensive uh, teams. They have physicians and, and nurses and other therapists and security personnel and logistics people and communications people, all the kinds of folks would be necessary to, to get us from that which tran transported us to the disaster to the site of the disaster, set up and get, get going. Um, and we also have a refugee medicine program that extends beyond that. So after the crisis is over and all those 
those staff have to come back to the, to the hospital and do their, their regular job. We have a team of fellows that, that go out to, the, to stay or go, go after the first ground, uh, uh, tranche uh, returns to provide long-term care and education and trying to build capacity within the country so that the country has the capacity to deal with the long-term uh, impact of that disaster. We have an incredible number of research activities overseas. Probably our most significant one at the moment is uh, led by Bruce Walker, and he's in partnership with a uh, research hospital in South Africa, and they're involved in a major uh, AIDS research project. Uh, we have partnerships and research projects in a number of, of countries with limited resources, Ethiopia, Liberia, Uganda, India, Bangladesh are the places we're focusing a lot of our attention at the moment. And we're basically trying to address two of the eight millennial goals that the United Nations established in, in the year 2000. Both of the, the goals we're looking at are deal with maternal and newborn child health. And our goal is to try to uh, get into countries that are having, that, that where there's a, a lot of uh, maternal and newborn uh, child deaths and try to figure out why and what we can do, what can be done to reduce that number. And one of the things we do that's different from a lot of institutions, a lot of hospitals like us do care, do education, but we're trying to integrate technology and medical care in a way that's, that's sustainable, that can be done, that can, can go on after we leave. Uh, simple example, um, uh, in, in Uganda, uh, one of the biggest problems is women who are in labor are far removed from, from a bir skilled birthing center. They don't necessarily know they're in trouble until it's, til it's too late to get to the, to the birthing <coughs> center. With MIT uh, scientists, we've developed a labor ban, which women will wear in their seventh, beginning of their seventh month. It will let the birthing center know what their blood pressure is, what their respirations are, what their pulse rate is. The same with the fetus. It uh, will let the uh, center know when the woman goes into labor and if she's showing signs of any distress. And to, to cap it all off, it's GPS equipped so that the birthing center knows exactly where, they, where the woman is and can get to her. Because the biggest problem in those countries is by the time the mother knows she's in trouble, she's too far away from the center. So those are the kinds of things we're doing. I'll, I'll pass it off uh, to my colleague here, and um, certainly look forward to your questions. Thank you, Bob. Um, good to be with all of you this afternoon. I'm Sylvia Farrell Jones. I'm president and CEO of YWCA Boston. YWCA Boston, not YM. Right. So start off by clarifying that. Um, YW is a global organization. I work here in Boston. We are affiliated with YWCA USA, which has 246 YWs um, throughout the United States and um, assets of about, combined assets of about $900 million across the country, 22,000 staff and 48,000 volunteers. So that's within the U.S. Globally, YWCA is in 125 countries. And the primary um, objectives on the global level are economic sustainability, um, sexual and reproductive health and rights for women, and also a focus on HIV AIDS. 
violence against women and human rights, and peace with justice. Now, YW Boston has a mission statement which is the same as the mission statement for every YWCA across the United States. And that is that we are dedicated to eliminating racism, empowering women, and promoting peace, justice, freedom, and dignity for all. The way that we live out that mission here in Boston is um, by looking at three aspects of that mission statement. One is racial equity, the second is uh, gender equity, and the third is building social cohesion within the Boston community across the boundaries that divide us. Uh, many people are unaware that YWCA is a racial justice organization but it has been almost since its founding. YW was an anti-slavery organization. It was anti-lynching and had proclamations about that in the early 1900s. The first national YW civil rights director was appointed in 1946, well before what we think of as the civil rights era in this country. Um, so that part of our history is not well known. Here in Boston, we are really working on the racial justice element of our mission. Two-thirds of our programs connect to racial justice. We have, actually I guess all of them in some fashion, we have um, three primary program areas. One is health for women and girls, particularly focused on low-income communities and done in partnership with community health centers and some of Boston's hospitals. The second area is racial justice dialogues. We have them for adults, and for the adults we do them both in the community and in schools in uh, collaboration with the Boston Public School Department, which has, in Boston you're probably aware that almost 80% of the public school students are children of color, 80% of the teachers are white. So within the schools, our dialogues are between the parents and the teachers. We also have youth police dialogues, exactly what it sounds like, teenagers, police officers. We do, the, do those in partnership with the police department. And the objective there is to build relationship, communication, deal with stereotypes, and help the police in their efforts to keep communities safe by connecting them with people who live in those communities. And then our third area is um, leadership programs, which are new to us. These particular programs we acquired in um, June of this year. And those programs are social justice leadership programs. The one for adults is called Lead Boston. Some of you may have heard of it. It's been around for 20 years. It's now a YWCA program. And the second is a corollary program for teens. It's called the Leadership Initiative, or In It. So I will stop there. But social justice leadership, um, racial justice, gender equity is what YWCA focuses on. Thank you very much. Um, Sylvia brought up uh, an interesting uh, opportunity or challenge of a global 
organization, and that is around mission. Uh, she mentioned the missions are uh, different, uh, and yet there's some crossover. So that leads to the next question, which is about challenges of a global organization. Some of the challenges might be based on the economy that we have right now, um, or they may exist no matter what the eco uh, economy presents to us. But along with the challenges comes opportunities as well. And I'm going to begin by asking Ed a bit about driving the mission of a global nonprofit um, as well as measuring its effectiveness. Sure. Um, I, I, th I think before any organization becomes global, you've really got to understand why you're becoming global. I think it's very attractive these days to put the term global in front of your mission. Um, but you've really got to understand why you're doing that because it does certainly present opportunities, but it also presents a huge number of, of challenges. The, from an Earthwatch point of view, there were really two drivers for, for us um, becoming a truly global organization. And I, I, I say this because just in the last three years, <coughs> um, we've opened offices in Brazil, India, and China. Um, and it was a very deliberate um, strategy, although uh, given uh, the economy over the last few years, it, it, with hindsight, it was, it was not ideal timing. <laughs> but the, 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 the drivers were twofold. Firstly, a mission driver. Um, part of my early career was spent in sub-Saharan Africa. I did a lot of work in, in conservation there. And it became very clear to me that there was a, a, a disconnect between the sort of top-down strategies that were being imposed um, internationally on these countries in terms of solutions, and I'm talking now primarily environmental, um, and um, the sort of local knowledge that existed on the ground. Um, and there was that sort of uh, need to be able, I think, for an organization it, it, to work internationally to be able to deliver its mission in a way that, that not only was top-down but also bottom-up, that actually sort of recognized the experience and, and the local knowledge and, and the local capacity that was there to actually be able to implement change. Um, and how does an organization build up that capacity in those countries in which it's operating so that it can deliver on its mission more effectively? Um, and I think it's very easy for us to, to sit essentially from developing countries and, and, and believe that we have the answers to, to what needs to be done on the ground, and that's just not the case. So, so part of it is, is the ability to be more effective in delivering your mission um, by recognizing, particularly if you're, if you're working in these different countries, that you needed to have that capacity on the ground. You needed to have some kind of structure to help in terms of mission delivery. And the other piece of it is, is that uh, from the other driver outside of mission was really a business driver. And that is that um, if any of you have traveled uh, you know, in, in ar around the world, quite often you'll, you'll, you'll see that, uh, particularly in terms of parks and, 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 and nature reserves and so on and so forth, you'll find that, that these parks are often funded or these initiatives are often funded by many of the same organizations just operating out of different countries. You know, that you'll, you'll find the same organization listed with, with, you know, but each from different offices around the world. And what I can tell you is that it's a hugely inefficient way of actually uh, delivering programs 
cost-effectively. Because what that essentially means is that every single office is, is sort of, if you like, competing for funds and, and delivering on, the, on, on those programs, but not doing it in a, in a, in a, in a uh, holistic way, but doing it you know, in a regional way. Um, and we wanted to try and get around that. We wanted to try and sort of um, steer, steer a middle ground that would enable us to deliver a global program cost-effectively, uh, building on and utilizing local knowledge, but still maintaining an overall consistency in terms of our high-level goals and measures of success. Because everything that we do, even if it's being delivered at a local level, has to, has to roll up into our organizational, if, if you like, uh, measures of success. And so that's what we really set out to do, is we, we set out to identify key markets where, because of the work that we were doing, we felt it was important to have representation. We felt it was important to have some kind of, of, of uh, infrastructure in order to deliver on the mission. Uh, more effectively, and to be brutally honest, those markets where we saw economic opportunity in terms of growth, um, which often went hand in glove with the environmental challenges that we were set up to, to address. So there was a sort of win-win, if you will, of moving in, particularly when you look at India, Brazil, China, because there's both huge economic opportunity there, which from a business point of view makes sense, but also from an environmental mission point of view, those are the very countries which are standing at a crossroads, if you will, and so our type of research could help potentially inform that, that agenda. But the challenges, I think, break down into, into um, you know, three areas. The first, which we encountered, was, was straightforward legal challenges. The, the, the reality is the world does not have a consistent approach to NGOs. In fact, every country defines what an NGO is completely differently. And so you're, every single country, you had to start basically with a clean sheet of paper in terms of everything from registration through to, to, to um, uh, incorporation and, and so on and so forth. Um, take China, for example. China is still schizophrenic about whether or not it likes NGOs or doesn't like NGOs, and it varies on a sort of month-to-month -month basis. So it makes it very difficult to actually know whether or not, you know, what your status is operating in China. Um, and so what ends up happening is uh, we, we ended up with a much more complicated structure within China than I would like. We have essentially a representative office in Beijing, which to all intents and purposes <coughs> is, is our sort of legal uh, government-facing entity. But that office in, isn't allowed to raise any money within China, so we then set up a separate office in, Chi in Hong Kong, which even though it is now part of China, operates on a completely different uh, basis to the mainland. And so, the, you know, it's a small example. Um, Brazil right now, Brazil has, uh, as of last week, the government announced that the, it wasn't going to allow any funding of NGOs in Brazil um, because they've, uh, there's been a huge corruption scandal, not unusual for Brazil, but a huge corruption mm -hmm. scandal. <coughs> so the government has basically shut down any kind of NGO um, uh, uh, financing for, for indefinitely, which you can imagine for, the, for our staff in Brazil is kind of alarming. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but it's something that you know, we'll have to work around. Um, so, so there are a lot of sort of legal uh, complexities. No, no one country is the same, and certainly no one country is approaching NGOs with a, with through a, a similar lens. The second piece is cultural. Um, I, I was talking a little bit about this over lunch. You know, part of the challenges from, 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 from my role is running a, a, a global NGO is incredibly difficult. You have all the challenges 
that you have with any large organization in terms of remote management, in terms of, of, of lack of face-to-face -face time, and so on and so forth. Well, you also have huge cultural differences. And it's very easy to sort of dismiss those in this modern age and say that technology is linking us and we're all sort of, you know, uh, uh, this sort of, uh, we're all a globalized family. We're really not. Um, and understanding how to, to, to operate uh, a, a global organization, a global NGO, it's, it's, it's very difficult. I remember when I, going back to China, when I first traveled to China, and I gave this great presentation, and everyone was you know, terribly polite and, and, and listened to me expound on my theory of why you know, uh, field work and, and working with the scientists was so important and so on and so forth. And it really w went down like a lead balloon. And I was, I was trying to sort of figure out exactly what I'd done wrong. And, and, and afterwards, very politely, I was informed that I couldn't go around in China using terms like field work. Because although we use scientific field research and field work as in, in normal conversation, in, in China, field work was associated with the Cultural Revolution. That's what the, their parents were sent to do, was to work in the fields. And in, in modern progressive China, with the focus on the future, that seemed like an awfully backward-looking and, 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 and kind of negative-sounding opportunity to the people I was trying to inspire. <laughs> and <laughs> so, so there are, there are cultural differences, and they're, and, and they're, they're quite pronounced, and, and, and they do provide uh, some, some challenges. And then finally, on the business side, you know, the, just being global in itself is no guarantee of success. Um, certainly, th it opens up opportunities, as I said before, and for th and when you're looking at the emerging markets. Um, but also, you're looking at a, a very different landscape in terms of what those business opportunities are. And so, it's very easy to assume that the model that's worked successfully, say, in the US for the last 40 years, you just pick up and you plug into another country and you're going to see a similar kind of, of success. Well, you're not. You know, we, I think we sometimes forget, and, I, and I'm a, obviously, as you know from my accent, a transplant here, but you, you forget that America is, is quite unique, particularly from an NGO point of view. I mean, this is a country that was really founded on some, uh, some basic uh, fundamentals around philanthropy and, and the importance of philanthropy and, 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 you know, all the cultural and academic institutions and, and medical institutions that have been f founded in this country on that rich history of philanthropy. That does not exist elsewhere in the world. You know, for in many of these countries, it is still a very much an emerging area. Um, and so I think you have to really sort of think about your business model, because the expectations that, that you know, having a compelling case for support uh, just doesn't cut it, particularly in areas where there are so many competing resources uh, or competing demands on the resources that exist. Um, and so it makes it a very, it makes it very challenging, very challenging. And the last point I'd, I'd make is that you know most NGOs are operating on pretty narrow margins these days. So you don't have necessarily a huge amount of of, of capacity, you know, or, or a large security blanket, which means that you know, from a time management point of view, and and particularly when you're looking at your 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 your, your key department heads and, and your, your key executives within an organization, you know, unless you've got it right, 
you can suck up a lot of time on global issues that may not necessarily provide the return on investment that you need, while at the same time you're trying to navigate what is uh, you know, a global recession and, and, and all the demands that are happening, if you like, back home. So just trying to give you a, a sort of fairly balanced overview of, of, of opportunities and, 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 and challenges, um, they're both there. They're, they're, you know, it's very real. If you get it right, uh, I think it can be highly successful. Um, and certainly we're seeing, uh, from our point of view, I think some, some very interesting growth in, in India and, and potentially in China. Brazil's been a lot harder to get off the ground. And, and funnily enough, we're just about to go into the Middle East, so I'll come back next year and tell you how that went. <laughs> Thank you, Ed. Okay. Um, Bob, uh, we talked a bit about value add, and um, Ed brought up uh, philanthropy and the different views and other parts of the world. Could you speak a bit to that sure. as a challenge as well as an opportunity? Well, Ed, Ed did a great job of, of, of framing this. Um, mm -hmm. Just a couple of comments or follow-up. Uh, you say you're going into the Middle East. Uh, in terms of this cultural, the cultural differences, I, when I was at Bentley, we put together a, a program that we were going to bring to, to Kuwait, um, and we had gotten right down to the end, uh, ready to sign the MOU, and we, and we were told by the Ministry of, of Education that, well, of course, you, you, you can't teach men and women in the same room. And one, that would have driven the cost out the roof, and secondly, it was counter to our philosophy of education. We just didn't believe that that made, made good sense. And <clears throat> so that, that killed the program. And unfortunately, I, I didn't anticipate that at the front end. Um, and secondly, in terms, in terms of philanthropy, Ed's right. We, we have a real culture of philanthropy in this country, unlike any place else in the world. Now, it's, it's changing a little bit in Western Europe, but, but fundamentally, the tax code in this country really uh, reinforces philanthropy. And when you make a, when you're a development officer and getting in front of a donor in this country and you're talking about a significant gift or a planned gift, you can talk about the tax consequences. Or if somebody's just had a great uh, payday and you want to say you want to shelter some of your tax burden there, there are ways to be philanthropic and do that. So they, they walk hand in glove. That, that doesn't exist uh, when, you're, when you're raising funds uh, from international uh, constituents. Um, there's a real sense, though, that if you can, if you do have a program in a given country, you can, if there's uh, wealth there, frequently identify people who will invest in their country, your program, as long as it's delivering the, pro the, the program in your country. In higher education, you might find people say, okay, we'll invest in scholarships for kids from, from India to go to the United States or from uh, Austria to go to the United States, or if you're Right now, we're dealing with some some <clears throat> very wealthy uh, Indians and trying to talk about how they can help us by investing in our program in uh, some maternal and newborn child health initiatives there. And I think we're going to be s fairly successful with that. They're certainly not going to send their money this way, but they'll help us do what we think we need to do overseas. It's it particularly difficult when you're trying to raise money to do programs in countries that have no wealth. So when you're talking about sub-Saharan Africa, that's virtually impossible. So you're re really relying on U.S. donors to support those efforts. There's no 
uh, shortage for, wa for ways for philanthropists in this country to use their, their dollars. The idea then that when, when we're in this economic climate to invest in, in, in a program overseas doesn't make as much sense as it might have when there was a few more dollars uh, floating around. So, but on the upside of that is when you get a U.S. donor to see how much a, a gift will, will do in a, in a developing country, they're more likely to give to you. Like you show them the $10,000 will increase the capacity, will double the capacity of a, of a, of a pediatric uh, intensive care unit to deliver oxygen to, to kids who are in intensive care. And so that the physicians no longer have to decide which four kids are going to die today because they can't have the oxygen treatment they need. That's compelling. But you have to get the donor thinking about that first. Uh, talking about uh, capacity, uh, most of the countries that we're dealing with uh, have a tremendously hard time uh, retaining their trained and skilled healthcare workers in their country. Many of the physicians are, are trained in other countries. They see how physicians live in those countries. They see what the economic benefits are to being to staying here or in, in other more affluent countries, so they don't want to go back home. So a challenge that we're trying to do through our program and, and raise the money to build the capacity on the ground for skilled <coughs> health care workers who probably can't, who won't be able to deliver the kind of health care that an MD or a, even a nurse practitioner would be able to deliver, but may be able to address 60 to 70 percent of the issues that are claiming lives there. So if you, if, if you, if you at least improve the health care delivery system to, to a point where it's solving 80 percent of the problems, that's a whole lot better than walking away from it. <coughs> Lastly, um, there's no uh, limit of opportunities for helping uh, deliver health, for delivering health care to people who need it around the globe. And our, one of the big problems that I see, a director of our Global Health Center is trying to set limits, trying to say, no, we can't do that. Mm -hmm. Because every one of the ideas that comes back, and every time a physician or a nurse or a, a therapist comes back from a country having done something, they have five or six different things that are really critical, important, that we need to do. We can't do them. So forcing people who are, have incredibly wonderful intentions to, 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 to focus their, their, uh, their activities is tough. It also allows us to go to donors and, and get them focused. But it's, that's, setting the limits, building capacity are really uh, challenges for us in global health. Thank you very much. Um, before we uh, go on to an expansion of our first question a bit, I want to remind you the cards are here. I know that many of you have written some questions, but we encourage you to do so. Just hold them up, and uh, someone will get them and get them up to me. Um, I want to broaden a little bit about the challenges and opportunities and talk a bit more about the practical and structure of uh, your entities, which are global. I spoke a bit you know, to this. Um, I know, Kathy, you talked about going through this uh, huge rebranding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'd be curious to find out if this is something 
you know, I'm among those that probably would say, well, I'm not old till I'm 85, you know. But um, is this true uh, throughout the world? Is that why part of the change came? What began the branding and looking at this organization, both in the United States and globally, and um, the structure in which you were able to, to do that? And then I want to hear from Sylvia a bit about uh, driving the mission um, globally. Well, um, like most for-profits, um, like most non-profits and for-profits, we certainly are experiencing challenging times during these uh, tough times. And because um, Rhodes Scholar's average participant is in his or her early 70s, which means they're on fixed income. And if you're on fixed income, and I see a lot of people in here nodding, you tend to cut back where it's an elective. And travel, even though it's good for the mind, body, spirit, and that kind of thing, it's, it's pretty much an elective. And um, it comes back on you later, but it's not something that you have to do. And as a result of that, um, when Rhodes Scholar began to look at its dwindling um, uh, participants, and we saw that the bulk of our participants were, were, were well past um, 60 or 65. We knew that the emerging market, if you will, friends, were the people in this room, baby boomers. And of course, we did a survey. And we found that most baby boomers absolutely did not identify with um, elder hostel. Everyone thought that was your mother's uh, and your, or your grandmother's um, travel company. Um, the other thing that I wanted to point out is, um, as you might imagine, because we're in 150 countries, the, our best financial upside, friends, it comes from international travel. It comes from international travel because people feel very, very comfortable traveling back and forth between the United States, uh, Canada, Puerto Rico, North America but they're less inclined to go to the more exotic uh, countries. Now, most people, they feel somewhat comfortable. I'm sure, how many people in this room have been to um, France, yeah, Italy, London, absolutely. And we really specialize in the more exotic kind of countries. And people are less adventuresome to go by themselves. And it is much fun when you go with a group. Um, they kind of tend to do all the work for you. They take the um, worry out of uh, sort of where you're going to go for dinner, who you're going to go for dinner. I'll tell you, friends, I, I, when my husband and I first would travel, we, we weren't world travelers, but we tended to sort of go right around the hotel. We weren't that adventuresome. Um, Road Scholar specializes in having dinner at um, the homes of the um, uh, the indigenous people of that area. We, we sort of take you in the out and about areas. We don't spend money on um, places like the Four Seasons. I like the Four Seasons too, but we don't spend money on having room service at three o'clock in the morning, or, or you know, or a bar or anything like that. We put people in very safe accommodations. We put people in centrally located places, but we tend to stay in three, 3.5 star um, accommodations. And um, as a result of the economy, we were looking around because um, people that are older or people that are in fixed incomes, they stop traveling. They stop traveling for that reason. 
And can anyone think of another reason why people, older people might have stopped travel? Terrorism. There you go, 9-11. When 9-11 happened, friends, we saw a 30% right away uh, a drop in, in international travel. People were afraid. And, um, and so the more adventuresome places um, tended to um, sort of drop, and the more adventuresome places are the places where they are more likely to kind of work with you and work with your budgets and that kinds of things. Um, the more established countries um, where people want to go and they feel comfortable going, they're so expensive now. And um, so therefore, as you can imagine, like any good marketeer, you have to figure out, okay, we've got to go to some untraditional sources. We've got to go with some people that generally like to travel, but maybe they don't sort of have a sense of uh, what's available to them. So the new and emerging markets were the underserved markets, whether that's the African-American market, the Latino market, the, the underserved markets, as, as you can imagine. And then we also were saying, you know what, we need to really start to really go after the baby boomers. And um, we had a pretty tough year, as you can imagine, right after 9-11 uh, and, uh, and the year after that. And um, we have stabilized, and uh, so we're feeling that things are getting much better. And, um, and so what we're trying to do as a result of that kind of thing, we're offering, we're helping people get there. We're offering programs that are um, uh, $600 or, or, or less. Um, the average um, North American program is around um, $175 a day. Our average program is six days, so you see where that, that is. The average um, international program is $275 a day. It's around uh, 12 days. Because remember, friends, if you're going to um, another country, if you're going internationally, you need a day to get there and a day to get back. And so you see 13 days, you take two days off, and you see where, we get to, where that gets us. And um, we um, are spending a lot more time in going to <coughs> places that um, are a little bit more off the beaten path. We're going to countries that are a little bit more um, underdeveloped that will give us a, 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 a pretty good um, bang for our buck. And then um, there are places that we used to go that were pretty good in terms of uh, price point, but people are very nervous about going there, and that, as you can imagine, is, is, is Egypt. You see that every day. What we are finding are some places that people have um, uh, embraced, and that's the Holy Land. And the reason why that has been, become such a nice place for us, because believe it or not, when times get tough like this, people tend to sort of go to their higher power or to their God more. And we're finding that as well. And I don't know, how many people here have been to the Holy Land? Oh, that's interesting. I have to tell you, I went to the Holy Land. Uh, I went with my church, and um, I went with a Catholic group in um, a year ago in October. And then when I went with, with my own church, a Baptist church, and I travel for a living, friends, and I have to tell you, the Holy Land is the most incredible place I've ever been. But the thing that really, really struck me is that the Muslims, the Jews, and the Catholics live so close in proximity to each other, and not so much the Catholics, but the animosity between the Jews and the Muslims is just really very painful. And um, so that, that, that in itself was really interesting. In both churches that I went with, 
one church in October was a predominantly all Caucasian, and the one in um, uh, just a few months ago was predominantly African American and Hispanic. And I will tell you that, um, you know, you really kind of hate to say the old, old, old cliche about um, no, no place like like home or America, but in terms of our philanthropic nature and trying to extend ourselves, whether it's through the hospital situation or through Earthwatch, one of the things that educational travel gets you to see, it really helps you really understand geography and sort of what really is going on in the world firsthand. So because we feel that we have such an important mission, we think it's in our best interest, not just for survival, but in terms of the, un, helping the world to continue to uh, educate itself, that um, we need to sort of cut back on the price of our programs so more people will find that they're available to them. Thank, Thank you, Kathy. Um, I'm going to uh, ask Sylvia a little bit about um, the way to measure effectiveness. I mean, um, one thing that uh, I maybe you mentioned, and I don't know, but is there a way of meeting the other YWCAs throughout the world? Um, are there similar measurements? Uh, and if you could speak to that for a second, and then we can get to the questions. So sure. keep writing down if you have more. Uh, measuring your effectiveness or your impact is critically important and grows in importance, I think, every year. Funders are looking for demonstrated results. So when you think about um, an organization that spans 125 different countries and doesn't have really tight mission alignment, measuring impact is a real challenge. So to your question, Celeste, about is there a way for people to get together, the answer to that is yes. There is a World Council meeting. It's held in various places around the world, but only once every four years. Um, so it's not very frequent. It was um, just this year in Geneva and four years ago in Zimbabwe. And I don't even remember where it's going to be four years from now. Um, but I have observed, I've been with YWCA for nearly five years now, and we don't have good ways of collectively in an aggregate measuring impact even within the United States. One of the things that gets in the way is um, that our mission is pretty, it's consistent in its statement, but it's very localized in how you execute. So if you looked at the YWs within the state of Massachusetts, of which there are 10, if I had a whiteboard and I listed the services, A, B, C, D, E, F, and the services for each of the YWs and said, what organization is this? You would look at it and say, is that one organization? Hmm. Now, the consistent part is racial justice and women's empowerment, but YW in Western Mass in Springfield is all about domestic violence. That is their primary program. In Haverhill, it's childcare. In Southeastern Massachusetts, in New Bedford, they have a real emphasis on women in the military. Here in Boston, I've already said, we have a big emphasis on racial justice. So that's, that's, that's what it's like 246 different times across the country. Um, we have, whoops, sorry about that. I'll ignore it. Um, I've been serving on a task force that's looking at the structural 
makeup of YWCA USA and evaluating it, the impact of our structure on our effectiveness. Because we are structured like no other um, affiliated network I've ever seen. We have regions, that's not unusual, but we have nine of them. That's kind of an odd number. I don't know how we came up with nine. This system was put in place a decade ago. And those nine individual regions are all separately incorporated. So we have YWCA USA, 501c3. YWCA Council for New England, 501c3. Northeast, which is New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, 501c3. Mid-Atlantic, on and on and on. Nine different corporations under the national corporation. Each of the nine sets its own dues. Each of the nine is supposed to evaluate the associations within that um, region, but the nine don't agree on what the standards mean, so there's interpretive dis disagreement. And I'll often hear um, something like, well, seven of the nine regions agree, blah, 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 or eight of the nine regions agree. You can't have a fully effective network when it's controlled 10 different places. It's crazy. Um, by the way, I came from another nonprofit organization before YWCA, which didn't operate this way, another national. Um, and before that, I spent 16 years in the investment management business. So I'm all about bottom line numbers, finance, you know, what's efficient. Um, and so one of the recommendations that just came out, we had a meeting in Chicago in October, is to collapse those separate corporation, corporations that are our regions, roll them up into the national. And we're talking about having measures that can be um, compared across just the U.S. We haven't gotten to the world yet, but just the U.S. Um, the challenge will be that the programming differs so much. And some people within the network believe that there are some things that we can measure. Um, I think that <coughs> remains to be seen. But once we get our structure rationalized, it will be easier then to have more consistency across the brand so that when you think, what is YWCA, someone in Cambridge and someone in New Bedford and someone in uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan, will all have the same idea. <coughs> it's going to take time to get there. Thank you very much. Um, I've got quite a few questions in front of me. We want to move to that portion of our program. Uh, certainly. Um, we w I know that our panelists want to answer every question you have. A few questions I got were very specific about an individual organization. Where are their job listings uh, when they have job openings, that kind of thing. I would encourage that kind of question to go directly to one of the panelists um, afterwards. But let me begin. <coughs> are there any other? Do you want to take a little break? Sure, stand up. Okay. That would be great. Okay, we'll call you back in uh, 
Four minutes, five minutes. Sixty something. I don't think it's eighty something. Right. I should have put some up here. It's slanted, so it's kind of old. I was a grad student at the University of Vermont. I stayed there during the summer, and they had these summer institutes for high school teachers, and they were of the fifty-five plus. Most of them were plus plus. They were kind of the grandparent generation of the student that was yeah. there for summer school. Right. Right. And it was the Watergate summer. No, thanks, Sylvia. No, you're right. I'll give it, thanks. Yeah. Thank you. It was the Watergate summer. Yeah. And I was fascinated because they ate in the same dining room with the students. And when I was at Bentley, we had, them, they had Elder Hostel there. And they did eat with the students. But the connection between the grandparent generation and the, and the student generation mm-hmm. was phenomenal. Parents tend to place a lot more value on what young people say the grandparents do. Right. You know, and crit- they're more no, critical. most definitely. And so yeah. the, Are you a grandparent? No, oh, no, no. I am. You're but, absolutely right. So, well, that's why grandmothers were always the people you could go to because they, they knew not to that's get right. excited about yeah, things. They knew right. these the things will pass having, and yes, parents yes, are freaking out. Happen. She but, has a question for you. But, oh, yeah. Oh. No, I don't need to stretch. <laughs> Okay. Um, but now I'm the theater, theater organization on the Cape. Where? On the Cape. Where? Wealthy. Wealthy? Okay, I live in Chatham, yeah. You did? Yeah. Excellent. So yeah. I have a lot of stuff going Great. And I do know that there's a huge difference in prospect wise. Oh, sure. For the tax code stuff? The, you know, quite frankly, the, the, yeah, the, and the, the people who, who know about, who I go to when I have those questions are, my plain give, are the plain giving people. Because most of the people who are thinking, what I find and what I think you're going to find is that most major gifts have a planned component, and most planned gifts are major gifts. So that um, whenever I'm talking about a major gift, or at least when I was at Bentley, it's a little less, a little different here at the hospital because it's a much wealthier clientele. It's a national-based, very wealthy people. But at, at a place like Bentley, you would you would basically never go into a major ask without thinking about what's the plan giving option and that's where the real benefit of the tax code is so if you if somebody has a big payday you, you go to them if um, everyone could go back to their seats so we have ample time for questions we'll go through the ones that have been uh, submitted 
And then if time at the end before two, we will we have a microphone so we can get questions from the audience. Um, although it seems as if in looking all my questions here, and there may be a few more, we may actually go until two o'clock. <laughs> Again, I would encourage you to talk to the individual panelists if you want information um, specifically about their organizations, uh, maybe not on the topic of their global operations. Okay? All right. Um, I found this to be very interesting. We have someone here who directs an environmental program dedicated to helping hospitals donate medical equipment for beneficial reuse in developing nations. So um, I think this would probably be most appropriate for both Bob and, and Ed to speak to a bit. Um, it says, does Earthwatch have any missions relating to responsible charitable donations or waste stream management in the medical community? And I don't know whether... That would be a very quick answer, no. No, Okay. <laughs> And then this is for Bob. Um, how does Mass General manage the latest concerns about disaster relief? Uh, for example, Haiti, regarding excess warehouse supplies, logistic issues, uh, control of unusable expired uh, supplies. So in a, a global, and I realize this is not your area in development, but uh, perhaps you are aware of some of the systems in order to be able to deal. Um, can I address the first question? Yes, absolutely. Um, I was just at a meeting the other day with, a, with an anesthesiologist who just came back from um, Libya, and she was there during all the, the uprising. And one of the pictures she showed was a pile of medical equipment sitting outside a building, all really neat stuff, but nobody knew how to use it. And so if you're thinking about uh, donating equipment, make sure it's not the most sophisticated stuff. Mm. Uh, make sure it runs, it, can, it, can run, it runs on some batteries because power supplies are intermittent. So there's all kinds of problems with donating medical equipment. So the, the less sophisticated the equipment, the more likely someone will use it. The more expensive and, and sophisticated the equipment, the less likely it'll it'll be used. Nobody would people probably won't say no to you because they want to be nice, but it'll probably end up on, on, on in a pile someplace. Um, I can't cannot speak specifically to that except to say that uh, to the second question, except to say that at MGH we have these disaster response teams that are 60 people big and. They have on them people who are supply chain management folks, communication folks, so people who know how to get to, to address those kinds of questions. They're people who are on the staff at the hospital, who uh, do that for the hospital, and then travel with the team. We, when we go, we go with our own communication people. We go with our own, own security people because people are concerned about uh, physical safety as well as the safety of our equipment. And so the kinds of, of infrastructure issues that, that are being raised there are things that our team uh, builds into our planning. Um, I wish I could say specifically because I've never, I haven't been deployed with one of these groups, but I am amazed when I, when I started working in disaster response or trying to raise money for disaster response, I was fascinated by, by the comprehensive kind of team you have to put together. Everybody who has something to offer wants to, 
but frequently, especially in the in the beginnings of a disaster, unless you're the right people at the right time, you're just going to be in the way. And so, when you're when you are responding to disaster, you really need to have the, the, the right kinds of people. For example, we have OBGYN, surg general surgeons, and anesthesiologists. Those are the three uh, primary healthcare professions, and then orthopedics because people need surgery, they need bones uh, set, and b babies are still being born. And so those are the three. Th so a lot of the other medical specialties, wonderful, maybe after the crisis, but not now. Thank you. Uh, we had another question about mergers and acquisitions, and, and one of the questions asked specifically actually to Ed um, that it would, based on what you stated, you have set up offices uh, throughout the world, uh, not necessarily merging with pre-existing organizations. So that was, uh, if you could speak to that a bit, Ed, and what this, the strategy behind that. And also, Sylvia mentioned the fact that Elite Boston, which was a program of another nonprofit, is now a program of the YWCA, so was looking at a merger-slash-acquisition in a little bit different way. So if the two of you wouldn't mind talking a bit about that, I'd appreciate mm -hmm. it. Sure. Um, I, I think that's actually a really important point and a, and a great question. I, I, one, of the, one of the, I think, of the great failings of NGOs uh, as a rule is, is, is that they have a, a tendency to want to, to recreate the wheel and, and invent everything themselves and, and have a belief that their model is the only model that works. And that's, uh, that's clearly not, not the case. No sector within the, the, the non-profit community, I think, is as bad as the environmental sector. We're horrible about working together, even though if you were to take out the names and look at the, the annual reports, you would have a hard time knowing which organization was which, because essentially we're still doing the same thing. So I think the, the real challenge is that um, organizations have to get better at, at partnering. And what we've done at Earthwatch, and, and, and when I say about, as I said earlier, about, about building in these countries where we can tap into local knowledge, is identifying the partners on the ground that we work with. Um, and we work with hundreds of um, both in, um, national and, and local and, and community partners to deliver on our mission. Um, the difficulty is understanding who those partners are, who's doing effective work on the ground. So what Earthwatch does, and, and when we're, we're putting in place a, a, a field office, is not necessarily put in place a, an office that's going to be doing everything soup to nuts, but put in place a, an office that has the ability to reach out and partner with the local community NGOs, the local community organizations, and, and national uh, bodies that are actually doing effective work on the ground. Because if you think about Earthwatch's model, you know, all we really are is a sort of fuel additive, if you will that we take an existing research agenda and what was going to take the scientific community maybe 10 years to, to gather that information, Earthwatch can, can accelerate that and get it done in five years. Um, so we're not actually going in to, 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 to build everything ourselves. We're going in to sort of, if you like, bring our model and then identify where it can be done uh, effectively and where we can speed up the conservation agenda on the ground. Similarly, in terms of our education and engagement programs, you know, it, we don't have the capacity to, to be able to um, have, you know, uh, huge marketing efforts in all of these countries in which we're working with. Instead, what we're trying to do is have people on the ground who know the country well, 
and, and are able to tap into uh, the academic community or, or the business community or whatever it is in order to introduce Earthwatch so that, again, we can achieve a sort of multiplier effect, that we can leverage the work that's being done on the ground or the opportunities that exist in those countries. So when you're talking about, and this is a, a, a different question on structure, and so I won't get into it, but when, when, when I'm talking about NGOs establishing offices uh, in these countries, it's very important to, to, to determine what you actually mean by office. Because in our case, what, what we're really determining is, is the, capa uh, the capacity that we need in those countries in order to deliver on our mission and realize the business opportunities. What we're not doing is duplicating, if you will, the functions and, 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 and the level and the um, capacity that we already have and just basically trying to replicate it in a new market. Instead, we're trying to say, okay, what are the key positions that we would like to have in those markets in order to be able to be successful in terms of mission delivery and in terms of uh, business expansion? So, yeah, we're not, we're not, um, uh, we're not by any means um, taking advantage of, of, of uh, the partnership route. In fact, that's, that's very much a driver for why we're operating in those countries in the first place. Thank you very much. Um, Sylvia, could you briefly speak a little bit about the LEAD Boston program and perhaps mm -hmm. how that, since there seems to be a, an interest in mergers and acquisitions. Sure. Um, are people familiar with what LEAD Boston is? Yes, no, I see Hedge nodding no. A few yes, some no. Um, just briefly, it's a leadership development program for mid to senior level executives from across government, not-for-profit, and private corporations, uh, for-profit entities, where a group comes together for the course of essentially a school year and learns about various social justice issues. Um, so you will learn about the education system, you will learn about racism, you will learn about health care, you will learn about uh, prisons, and usually the um, issues and, as they say, isms are paired. So you might learn about um, disabilities and housing, education and race. You spend a full day together each month as a group and you work on projects and our objective in bringing the program in was to add to the leadership level of, of our own network because we're working on systemic issues and it occurred to us in developing our new three-year plan that you can't address uh, systemic issues simply by working with individuals and a few organizations. So we've, we've um, built these vertical mechanisms for each of our focus areas to work from grassroots level up through leadership. And LEAD Boston now has a alumni network in this area of over a thousand people who we hope to um, re-engage in some of our work. The, what we did there was um, akin to a merger, but it was not a formal merger. And the reason it wasn't a merger was because when you bring two entities together entirely, you get the assets and the liabilities. We were only interested in the assets. <laughs> we had no interest in the liabilities. So what we did um, technically was an acquisition of the assets an exclusive right to use the curricula, the names, the trademarks, et cetera. Um, so we acquired those for the two leadership programs and then the um, organization that used to have those programs has now dissolved. So we essentially 
did an asset transfer without paying dollars out, but um, we did commit to keep those programs going. Two years before that, that just happened last spring, two years ago we absorbed two other programs, which are now our dialogues programs within the community and, and youth police dialogues. And that, I use the term absorb because the entity that owned them, that did those programs, was not, really, was not incorporated. It was housed within the Urban League as its fiscal agent, and it was a group of volunteers who were making this work happen and had been for some number of years. They came to us and we brought them in. We have, um, just within the past month, I turned down another opportunity to merge with someone because one of the things I've observed is when you start bringing things in, then you become, you know, people start to think of you as a rescue operation. You know, our nonprofit is running out of money, therefore maybe YWCA will absorb us because we work with girls. Um, but I, we didn't pursue that particular most recent opportunity. We'll be open to others. Um, mergers are one of the things and consolidations and partnerships. I should also say most of our work happens through partnership with other organizations. For instance, all the girls' health work. We have the health educators. Other places have the girls. So we go to them and offer our education programs. We don't bring girls to us. We go out. Um, the funding community... Uh, Boston Foundation is very big on beating this drum, says nonprofits should merge, they should consolidate, there are too many of them. I've yet to hear anyone say how many there should be, so that's one thing. But the, the other, I think, practical challenge is there is no one funding mergers. When you think about two banks coming together, they have attorneys, they have uh, consultants for HR and everything else, they, have, they hire people to help them because they still have to operate their business while this transition is occurring. That happens all the time in the for-profit sector. No one is providing funding to nonprofits in any significant way to do the same thing. And so to expect a thinly staffed nonprofit entity organization to take on this other huge burden for free, now, when are you going to do it? It does happen sometimes, but it's very difficult. And I've, I've been involved in mergers in the nonprofit sector and in the for-profit sector where I used to work, and I can tell you nonprofit mergers are harder. They're much harder. They're harder because the boards are volunteers and they're very emotionally invested in the organization they're also harder because you don't have just financial bottom line to look at and add up the numbers and see what makes sense. So I think that's part of why they don't happen as much, but the other part is because they require resources, and they require resources beyond you know, a consultant who will meet with them once. Thank you very much. Um, I found uh, there are two other questions I, that we I think maybe we could speak to both of these um, at once. Uh, one is around developing leadership in a global institution, and the other is around the use of volunteers and the role of volunteers within your organization. Perhaps you could, if you are aware of uh, it, it, the use of volunteers and how leadership is developed 
in your offices um, throughout the world as well as the, here in the United States. That would be great. And, and um, Kathy, maybe we could begin with you uh, talking about developing leadership within well, your organization. Well, we um, use a number of ambassadors uh, because we are um, in so many countries and obviously in every state in the United States. We certainly can't afford to have paid uh, staff in all these places. And in order to um, help facilitate and get people to want to be ambassadors, because we offer so many programs, we offer 7,000 programs, and um, we're able to have people go out to various um, community um, events and uh, nonprofit organizations and um, continuing care communities, CCRCs, and those kinds of things. So we um, employ or activate about 500 ambassadors around the country. And we have a formal training uh, session that we do through webinar uh, once a month and keep them abreast of what's happening and what's changing uh, with the um, organization, what's new, and um, why people should want to uh, travel. And if they can't travel, we also offer scholarships and how we can help them travel. And we find that the ambassadors are really quite effective because uh, they're very passionate in order to be an ambassador, you have to go on at least five programs. Mm -hmm. So they know the programs really inside out. So they're really speaking, not because they're getting paid. They're speaking from the heart. They're speaking because they believe in, in the programs. And they're also our eyes and ears on the ground. You know, they're the ones that can sort of tell you firsthand what's happening, what are people saying about the programs, what's not working, even though we have a very rigorous uh, survey system. And, um, and a lot of our ambassadors have come through our system and that's how we uh, also um, promote from within. We start off with people that are generally either ambassadors or right at the entry level. And because the travel business we find is very, very complicated like a lot of businesses, we find that we do much better with our leaders if they have a pretty good sense of sort of what's going on. And uh, that's the system that we, we, we work from within. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Ed, are volunteers a part of your structure in uh, throughout the world? Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly from a from a mission delivery point of view, the public program, um, <coughs> which I referred to earlier, which over the last forty years has been uh, well over a hundred thousand international volunteers working on 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 our projects. Uh, that that represents the public represents about a third of our revenues, um, and as a result, uh, many of those uh, individuals go on to be remain heavily involved and engaged uh, with the organization, and some um, go on to play um, sort of ambassadorial kind of roles in terms of helping facilitate word of mouth and 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 help us with events and so on and so forth. I think if, if I could touch on the leadership question, though, mm -hmm. I, I think that's a really, again, it's a real key question in terms of um, global NGOs, because I think it's one of those, um, it touches a little on the, on, on the culture piece, the business piece, et cetera, et cetera, because the challenge in, 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 in being global is trying to get the balance right between what are those as, as essential, if you like, characteristics of, of, of your business or your organization that you want to replicate in all markets so that it's standardized? 
And then what are the sort of pieces that you want to essentially delegate out to take advantage of, of, of if you like, innovation and growth and local knowledge? And so I think when, you, when you're looking at these, these kind of questions, some things are fairly obvious. So clearly, if you're a global organization, as was said earlier, you want to have consistent measures of success. You want to have consistent high-level goals. You want to have a consistent vision because you want to be the sum of all your parts. And certainly when it comes to fundraising, you have to these days. Nonprofits are and, are and should be held to account in terms of the success of their programs and how they're measuring that. But other pieces are, are, get a little bit harder um, because obviously you want to, to, to facilitate that sort of bottom-up uh, innovation as well. And I think when it comes to leadership, what, what we've tried to do, and the jury's still out on whether or not this is going to work or not, we, we've tried to be consistent in terms of our own HR policies, procedures, uh, our, our management training and, and, and performance management uh, criteria, and, and make that consistent across all markets. Now, clearly, there are differences, legal differences. And so in terms of employment law, it's different in every single country. So it's not like we can take exactly the same um, HR structure and impose it on these different markets. But from a leadership point of view, what we're trying to do is have a consistent uh, approach to what it means to be a leader within the Earthwatch organization. You know, what are the values that we all subscribe to? What are the, are the performance measurements that we, we, we um, um, are held to account for, you know, what is the, the evaluation uh, methodology during the course of the year. And, and, and we'll see. I mean, uh, to, to be honest, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's early days. I think there's some areas where it's working well. The, hard, uh, the harder thing with promoting leadership, particularly in a global organization, and again, I, I hate to keep on coming back to resources, is how often you can actually, I mean, for me as the CEO, how often I can get my management to team together in one place. Mm. And, that, and that's, that's, that's really, really hard. And, and, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, well, you don't have to nowadays. There's video conferencing and everything else. But it, believe me, it doesn't work. It's, it's, it's not the same as face-to-face. -face. So as you're trying to build that leadership, you know, and, uh, you know it is, in, I think, a challenge to, to, to be consistent as a global organization. Um, and it's also challenging because any business has a sort of love-hate relationship with its head office. It's natural. We're the guys that don't really know what's going on. <laughs> you know. We're the guys who are asking for management reports, which are clearly ridiculous and not needed. <laughs> you know. We're the guys who are setting unrealistic deadlines in terms of, of, of you know, reporting and also setting up conference calls at 3 o'clock in the morning because we don't understand the time differences. So th there's a lot of baggage that comes along with that, that kind of day-to-day uh, management of, of a global organization. And so trying to make sure that you've got at least the ability to develop, develop your leaders within that structure is definitely a challenge. Um, does anyone else on the panel have uh, any thoughts? Um, yes, relative to volunteers, I don't think anybody who, who raises money for a living can, can exist without, without volunteers. Mm -hmm. uh, most organizations would say that 90 to 95 percent of the money they raise comes from 5 to 10 percent of their donors. And those donors are usually your volunteers, your lead volunteers, or their volunteers who have opened doors for you to get to other people who are going to make the, 
make the significant contribution. We couldn't do our global health initiative without volunteers. It just wouldn't ha couldn't happen. When we are trying to raise money in India, we've got two or three very influential people in India who are introducing us, introducing what we do, and opening the door. We couldn't do it without volunteers. And I think my colleagues from MGH would say that just about every one of their areas of, of responsibility relies on an advisory board or a group of volunteers in one way or another. Okay. Uh, and lastly, of the questions that were submitted, um, there was a, a couple of questions kind of asking the same thing about the corporate support. And in the area of development, um, has there been a change? And if so, how are you dealing with uh, corporate funding? Yeah, there's been a change. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, corporate and all the foundations are are, are mm -hmm. basically granting, making grants for gifts from the money from the um, from the interest on their investments or the performance of their investments. And in this economy, those uh, endowments haven't been doing too well. So as a consequence, despite their best intentions, they just don't have the dollars to to um, to uh, grant that they had a few years right. ago. So yeah, it's been it's been a real challenge. Mm -hmm. um, they tend they then tend to focus their giving more. Uh, they tend to be more uh, fussy on on uh, who they'll accept proposals from. In my former life, working at a, at a at an institution that probably didn't have the national draw that certainly didn't have the national draw that MGH had. It was real tough to get in front of the corporate community. It's a lot mm -hmm. easier at MGH to do that, but at Bentley, it was tough. Mm -hmm. So if you have a, that kind of a national or, or global reputation, it, you can still get in front of some of these large corporations. If you don't, it becomes it has become real hard. How many are in here are development offices? I'm just curious. Oh, so quite a bit. I, um, as I mentioned, uh, was at GBH. I ran the corporate... Uh, local corporate development department for 12 years, and then I was at um, uh, WBZ-TV. And I will tell you, um, the thing that I, I know you work on that I have to just really underscore is because there are so many nonprofits in Boston, and having worked for two the last two years, Elder Hoster, Road Scholar, and then WGBH, you have to really show uh, those corporations what your USP is, your, your sort of unique selling position. If they think that you're duplicating at all, that's when they just come and really kill you. You just have to figure out what your niche is, and you've got to really try to figure out what their strength is and um, what their need is and what your strength is and really try to marry it. Um, what I always have tried to do at GBH is show the impact. GBH's numbers are not large. It's a great station. And um, their numbers are lot, not large. They don't have the commercial rating that BUR has. So my job and the job of my team was to try to show uh, sponsors what the impact they would get from um, associating with um, WGBH. And that's the same thing um, when I go to corporations and um, those for support for uh, Road Scholar and uh, Elder Hustle, I have to really try to really just show them why it's really different. So many people, you guys, are knocking on their door. They only have, uh, let's just uh, assume, uh, you know, a dollar. 
for every dollar, and they're giving out 10 cents of those of that dollar, and you want to be one of those 10 cents or whatever. You want to, um, they just are not going to give to everyone. There's, there are so many people that are needy, and you know, you keep knocking on their door, and even if you have something where the match really does make sense, you're then at that point trying to knock somebody out to get that, their 10% that they gave. So you just have to keep staying at it, and you have to just kind of figure out, and you know I know this, every time you call the person or email them or send them a proposal, you can't just say, are you going to give me your, you have to come up with some sort of value proposition of why you're calling them, because no. otherwise they won't keep taking your phone call. So um, it's a tough job. I did it, so I, I, I kind of feel your pain, and I'm still doing it. Um, so that's my two cents. Ed. Yeah, I have a, a somewhat different perspective, which is, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with what my colleagues have said, but I, th I think there is a way now, I mean, our fastest growing area at the moment is in terms of corporate partnerships. Mm -hmm. I think what's changed is that you need to rethink uh, what it means in terms of partnership and move away from the traditional corporate philanthropy model largely through the foundation and instead try and align your mission with the business goals of the, of the corporation that you're talking to. Because the fact is these corporations do have money. They're sitting on a lot of money. But it's not necessarily where it traditionally was kept. And, and also the, 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 the giving isn't always coming out of those traditional areas. If you go to the, if you go to the foundation, uh, you, you're, you're in for a rough road, absolutely. You know, you're, 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 gonna, you're gonna have an uphill climb. But if you can find a way to get into the company outside of the foundation, if you can find a way to get in through the business side and, and present an opportunity that actually makes and ties in with the business goals, then there is a huge upside in terms of corporate partnerships. And I'm obviously speaking from an environmental perspective right now, and we're in a very fortunate space right now. Because if you think about environment and, and what it means to, to the businesses and, and look mm -hmm. at the US corporate sector, there's a mm -hmm. tremendous change that's taking place, mm -hmm. certainly over the last yeah. five years, a dramatic change. And it's not being driven by, by government, because as we all know, the US government has managed to avoid signing pretty much anything that, that's going to lead to any kind of regulation. So instead, what you have is you've got companies that are looking at environmental issues uh, with regard to how that's going to impact their bottom line. And I can tell you that companies will generally be somewhere on a spectrum between denial, threat, and opportunity in terms of their thinking. The companies that are early innovators in this space are now realizing that there is this triple bottom line. There is this ability to make a substantial impact environmentally that's going to not only improve um, the, 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 the um, company in terms of its, its, its um, social responsibility agendas and so on and so forth, employee retention and engagement, but also has, has a material impact in terms of its profitability. Um, and that's where there is a lot of opportunity, is really understanding what a company's social agenda is. And they publish them now. <laughs> They're there. And, and looking at what they're currently doing and figuring out a way to bring your mission into alignment with those goals. Because funnily enough, companies still, to my mind, have, have incredible silos, even within their, their, their CSR strategies. You, know, you, re you read their annual report or the sustainability report, you'll generally find it broken down into 
this is what we're doing with employees, this is what we're doing in community, this is what we're doing in education, this is what we're doing in environment, this is what we're doing in supply chain, etc., etc. If you can find a way to bring these pieces together, you know, and, 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 and non-profit partnerships, believe me, are for a business, probably the most cost-effective way of, of, of uh, leveraging the potential and, and also the goals that they're trying to achieve. You, you're into a really productive area um, and something where I think, you know, looking to the future, the biggest thing that gives me confidence, because it's easy to get depressed environmentally, um, the biggest thing that gives me confidence is the potential in terms of private social sector partnerships. That's where the innovation is happening right now. Um, and it's not happening because it has to, it's happening because it makes sense. And so, and so I think corporate ph philanthropy as, you know, enshrined in, in, in the corporate foundation and, and so on and so forth will always have a role. But I think there's a whole different area now that, 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 that is growing, that is exciting, that, that I think um, is worth exploring. Thank you. Uh, is there any burning question? We only have time for about one. Yes, go ahead. Quick advice would, would be to exhaust every option before you try and do it yourself. In other words, really the earlier question that was asked about partnerships, you know, if you're a small organization, the most cost effective way you're gonna have is, is by spending the time to identify a credible partner that you can work with. And 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 and, and nine times out of ten I would argue you're gonna be more effective at that level. You know, if it grows, if the program, you know, picks up speed and expands and, and everything else, then fine, you can reconsider. But I, I would really try to invest the time in identifying a, a, a local partner on the ground that you can work with and work through them before you begin to incur any cost in terms of trying to set it up yourself. And do you have a board? I have found that when you network <coughs> through your own network or through your board or through friends, when you start to tell people, don't keep what you're trying to do to yourself is what I'm saying because that's how things um, are uncovered. You know, someone, you, you talk to someone who talks to someone and then, you know, that's just kind of how things get discovered. Uh, and I'm sure you know that. It's, it's, it's a really key question, and in fact, there's a, there's a really interesting debate going on right now in terms of the larger humanitarian uh, organizations, in terms of what they actually now set aside, if you like, 
to allow for the very fact that they can't deliver aid in these countries without knowing full well that a certain percentage is, if you like, um, you know, grey money. You know, it's 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 very difficult. What you have to do is 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 you know put your your um, structure in place, you know, and and make sure that your board in particular uh, understands what the challenges are, um, and that you are you know have uh, sort of upfront, if you like, uh, disclosure in terms of where you see uh, the potential downside, where you see the challenges. Um, and you know, there's a, a comfort level that, that you and the board have to be able to live within. Because if at the end of the day you find that you're, 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 you're not comfortable being able to deliver on your mission within those parameters, then you have to, you know, it's a board decision. You have to pull, pull out and stop. Um, I mean, it's very, very challenging. Um, so so I, I, I think you know, certainly what we found is that every country is different. Um, but we try to have minimum standards that we adhere to, um, certainly in terms of accountability, transparency, and, and, and we just won't cross those. Um, and we review them, and, 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 and you know, we make sure that we uh, you know, assess them to, you know, on, a, on a regular basis. But sometimes we're just not able to operate in certain places. You know, it's just a reality. I have one final wrap-up question that I would like each of the panelists to answer in about a minute or a minute and a half, and that is one tip, um, one challenge, one piece of advice that you could uh, leave our attendees with. Um, I'd appreciate it, and Sylvia, why don't we start with you? This will not take a minute and a right. half. Right. Um, my tip is to schedule time in your calendar with your uh, key colleagues, your senior team, whoever that group might be, to think and to dream. We get so busy doing everything that needs to be done on a routine basis. It just occurred to me a couple of days ago, I was talking with my chief operating officer and said, we need a dream session because we haven't had one in a while. So. Put it in the, nothing that uh, is not in my calendar happens. So I have to put it in the calendar, and I'd suggest you do the same. Thank you. Bob? Uh, I'll go back to the volunteer uh, uh, question. Uh, the tip is, if you are uh, going to uh, put together a group of volunteers to help you advance your agenda, whether that means raising money or whatever, Make sure it's very clear with those volunteers what you expect from them right from the, right from the get-go. I think a lot of us tend to uh, encourage people to come in to work with us by creating quote-unquote advisory committees. Um, and by the third meeting, you don't know what you're going to do. <laughs> so if you're going to use volunteers and solicit them, I would say get a few really good ones and make it clear what you want from them. Thank you. Kathy? Um, I think during this, these tough economic times and downturn in the economy, it's really easy just to keep laying people off and cost-cutting and cost-cutting. I mean, that's the easy thing. I think that I would encourage your president or your supervisor or yourselves to gather a group 
and to figure out ways that um, you can help grow your business. And um, because the economy is definitely going to come back. And I think rather than having a situation where coming into work can be demoralizing, if there's a group to try to figure out, okay, just as Ed said and my colleagues have said, there are ways, there's money out there. And you just, and then there's a collective way and just try to figure out, okay, how can we try to go after this? How can we try to make this a better situation? And sort of where, where are there holes that we're not seeing? And um, I, I think things will really um, get better for everyone as a, re as a result of that. That's, that's a tactic that we're taking. And it seems to be um, at least uh, showing some signs of life. Ed. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there were sort of three things that spring to mind. The, 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 the first is, is focus. You know, you've really, as an organization, got to really understand what it is you do well and really focus on that. It, you know, the, and the, ch the challenge actually with when times are good is nonprofits tend to lose their focus. So the, the, the opportunity when times are bad is it gives you a chance to sit back and really say, okay, what is it in the world that we want to be best in the world at? And what are, where are we being most successful? Where are, we you know, where are our programs having most impact? And really focus on that. And, and really get into the discipline of, 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 if you like, getting rid of those areas that aren't core to your, your mission and your focus. The second piece is to remember that at the end of the day, it's all about relationships. You know? and, and relationships, doesn't, they don't cost money, they just cost time. You've got to continually invest in those relationships. You know, because any profit, non-profit, internally or externally, is just a, a collection of people. And you've got to invest the time in those. It doesn't, you know, you can spend a lot of time on wonderful strategic plans and, and everything else like that, but it's the relationships which are the key of any nonprofit, and investing time in that is really important. And then the last point is to be realistic. You know, it, we're living in a culture and where, you know, everyone's going to business school and, and hoping that it's going to be, you know, they're going to come up with the next big idea, and we've got this sort of obsession with the overnight success. You know, we love those stories. It doesn't happen. I'm sorry it doesn't. I mean, maybe once in a while. What really makes success is, is, is long-term perseverance, uh, is really building something that has quality over time. And that's really where you've got to be real, very realistic, you know, in, in terms of what you're able to achieve. So those would be my three. Thank you very much. Um, uh, some of these uh, questions that were handed off on cards were directed to specific individuals on the panel, and I'm happy to pass those to them, uh, assuming maybe you could stay two minutes afterwards in case someone has a particular question. Um, that would be great. I want to remind you to please fill out the evaluation form, the blue form that's on your table. As we know, we want to learn from the experience that we had today. And I would like to give a warm round of applause to our panelists, Ed Wilson, Kathy Taylor, Bob Minetti, and Sylvia Farrell, to, for coming today and sharing their wealth of information. Thank you so much. Thank you. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University.
please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.